John Huss was burned at the stake for being accused of heresy hundreds of years ago. And of course, his position was simply that he held to the word of God and the word of God alone by faith alone. In grace alone. According to the word of God alone, Martin Luther followed him and was summoned to appear before the Diet of Worm. That's not having a diet of worms, by the way, in the English vernacular, but before a council of church leaders. And the spokesman for the church leader said, Martin, how can you assume that you are the only one to understand the sense of scripture? Would you put your judgment above all of so many famous men and claim that you know more than they all? You have no right to call into question the most holy orthodox faith, namely the Catholic Church, instituted by Christ, the perfect lawgiver, proclaimed throughout the world by the apostles, sealed by the red blood of the martyrs, confirmed by the sacred councils, defined by the church in which all our fathers believed until death and gave to us an inheritance, and which now we are forbidden by the Pope and Emperor to discuss, lest there be no end of debate. In other words, we can't challenge the theology of those who have led us in the past. I ask you, Martin, answer candidly and without horns, that is, without a lot of fanfare. Do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors which they contain? Of course, the error that they would say was justification by faith alone. And that is the theology in which we stand. Amen. And they said to him, you had better repudiate it. He knew they were serious as John Huss was burned to death um, at the stake before him. Luther answers, since then your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer without horns, that is without fanfare and without teeth, that is without vengeance or vehemence. Unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. What a huge point in history that was during the Protestant Reformation. And today we consider a text having to do with courageous conviction. How is it that Martin Luther was able to stand there before that council who had put John Huss to death by burning him at the stake? How is it that Martin Luther and others throughout the ages and in our text could march right into the lion's den, as it were, and not flinch, not falter when facing very real persecution. Believers need courage to follow God's will. And in Acts chapter 21, preaching through the book of Acts, chapter 21, verses 8 through 16, this morning, a message that I have titled, Courageous Conviction. That is the type of belief, the type of bedrock belief and conviction of the soul which generates unusual, extraordinary courage 
in the lives of believers. Courageous conviction, Acts 21, verses 8 through 16. And the next day, we that were of Paul's company departed and came unto Caesarea. And we entered into the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and abode with him. And the same man had four daughters, virgins, who did prophesy. And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. And when he was come unto us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this belt and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard these things, both we and they of that place besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What mean ye to weep and to break mine heart? For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying, The will of the Lord be done. And after those days, we took up our carriages or our luggage and went up to Jerusalem. There went with us also certain of the disciples of Caesarea and brought with them one Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple, that is one who had walked with the Lord in the early days, with whom we should lodge. Two primary points on this particular message, if you can see the overhead, courageous conviction, two points with a couple of subpoints. Um, if you're taking notes um, about what will be true of courage, which springs from deep rooted conviction. Do you think you have that type of courage? If put to the test, would you stand up and say that my conscience and the word of God bears witness and to go against that is neither wise nor safe. It's not a good idea to violate the known will of God. And could you, could I stand before persecutors as Paul was going to, as Martin Luther did and as countless others have throughout the ages. What will it look like? What will it take? What is involved in that type of courage? The first thing I'd like us to consider is found in verses eight and nine, and that is courage, which is contagious. Courage, which is contagious. Paul had now just completed his third and final missionary journey. He had landed at Caesarea. You can see that in verses eight and nine. And Caesarea is named after who? Guess. It's named after Caesar, of course, because Caesarea is the location, the seaport in Palestine where it was the headquarters of Rome. It was the headquarters of the Roman authority and the Roman legion was there and, and all, all of the authorities, the governor and, and those who were calling the shots for Rome, they would get messages um, uh, from ships and they would carry out those orders from Rome uh, in that particular region. Caesarea was a cosmopolitan city. It was filled with Jews and Gentiles. Um, it was the chief seaport as well that serviced Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was 65 miles southeast of uh, Caesarea, but it was the place, the closest place that Jerusalem had um, to use as a seaport. So Caesarea was a very uh, strategic city, a very critically important city during the time of uh, the early church. In our text, how is it that courage was contagious. In what way does it manifest itself in verses eight and nine? The first thing we see is that Philip caught it. Philip is the focus in verses eight and nine. Philip was one of the original deacons. He was the guy that, uh, who was 
thrust into the ministry because in Acts chapter 6, there was a problem within the church. There was division that was starting things. The the unity was crumbling all around. And uh, the apostle says to the congregation, you choose out uh, those men who are full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit. We want to appoint over this issue of church unity really was what the focus was. And so Philip was one of those who were chosen, who was chosen in Acts chapter 6. Now, very likely in Acts chapter 7, uh, he was present. He was very much aware of what, what happened with his deacon brother, Stephen. Deacon stood up in Acts chapter 7 and preached a tremendous message about salvation by grace through faith. And it's not by uh, the keeping of the law. And those who heard him hated him for it. And they took boulders and crushed him, crushed his skull and stoned him to death. And even with his dying words, he asked for their forgiveness, that the Lord would not lay this uh, sin to their charge, but that they would have mercy. Philip certainly witnessed that. And it says that Stephen was led away by righteous or just men to his burial. Certainly Philip would have been one of those involved in that because he was right there in Jerusalem during that time. This is a pillar of the church, uh, uh, Philip is. Uh, God had called him then in, um, in Acts chapter 8 to leave his home. And very likely, he, a couple of his daughters were um, young at that time. Uh, my guess is he very well may have had all four of the daughters at that time, but, but at least a daughter or two was born by then, by then, probably an infant, because at this point in Acts 21, it's 20 years later. And presumably, Presumably the daughters are getting uh, up uh, uh, later teenage years uh, and uh, since it, 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 it identifies them as virgins, meaning they could they are marriageable. They could be married. You wouldn't say that about an eight year old who isn't even uh, at a point point of being married. But you might say it about a 20 year old or a 23 year old or a 26 year old. So probably Philip left his wife and left a baby or two babies or maybe even three of those little girls. And he went off to a soul winning campaign. And you'll remember that he came across across the, um, uh, the queen from Ethiopia, Candace, and all of her royal court. And he witnessed to the, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch. And then he went to Samaria and he planted the church in the Samaritans who were hated by the Jews. Yet Philip had a courageous heart. He had seen what was going on in the church in Acts chapter 6. He saw what Stephen had done and he was being commissioned by the Lord to be a soul winner and a church planter thinking of that, that Ethiopian, um, that group. Jews hated the Samaritans and they hated the Gentiles even more. But the Ethiopians were not just Gentiles. They were black Gentiles. And so not only do you have religious hatred, you have racial prejudice there present as, as those folks grew up. And so you see Philip just jumping over all kinds of hurdles that would lay, uh, that would block any number of other folks. But he wasn't, he didn't care about that. He wasn't going to cave into fear. He wasn't going to cave into prejudice. He wasn't going to cave into his own um, preference or his own comfort zone. He was going to accomplish the will of God. So he preached all over Palestine and then he settled in to Caesarea. Courage from the apostles on the day of Pentecost had to have moved his heart. Uh, Courage from Stephen during Stephen's message in standing before that group. And Stephen's martyrdom had to have, have strengthened him, had to have emboldened him. 
in Philip's mind, there wasn't any question. He was convinced that what the apostles had and what they preached and what Stephen demonstrated was the power of the spirit of God. And he was going to have that. He caught that very same boldness. He caught that courage as he saw it displayed in the lives of others. Philip caught the courage that is contagious. Secondly, Philip taught it as well. And he really did. We see it very clearly spilled out here, spelled out here in verse nine. I mean, it is as clear as it can be in verse nine. And the same man had four daughters, virgins who did prophesy. How do you teach courage? How is it that you teach courage? How is it that if you are fearful or if I am fearful, you can sit down with me and, uh, and somehow I'll get up from that table. I'll get up from that session and I'll just be emboldened and I'll be ready to go and I'll be ready to, to storm the Bastille as it were and not have any measure of cowardice about me. Well, it's not done that way. Courage is taught by example. It is modeled and Philip modeled courage to such a degree that his four daughters became genuine proclaimers of the way, the truth and the life found in the Lord Jesus. You know, it's interesting. I've been thinking about this this week. I'm going to embarrass my good buddy and the one who humbles me weekly in tennis, Ed Hudson. It's interesting. Ed is a deacon and he has four unmarried daughters. Where's Ed? Ed, are you in here? Uh, this is you, Ed, this is you. I mean, it really is. He's a deacon here at this church and he's a soul winner and he's brave and he, he marches right out into uh, um, any kind of a situation to minister. And he has uh, four daughters, I'm presuming. Uh, Caitlin probably is thinking that she's prophesying at this point, but uh, uh, being four years old or so. But uh, the idea of prophecy, by the way, don't let that trip you up. When it says that the girls, the daughters prophesied, um, what that is saying, they weren't pastors and they weren't, <clears throat> they weren't deacons. They weren't uh, evangelists in the sense of having that office. The New Testament office or, or gift of uh, being a prophet, uh, yes, it does deal with new revelation. That is speaking forth the word of God uh, as well as authenticating God's message. But in this case, it sure seems like what it's talking about is that God was using these girls to simply tell the same story that they had seen modeled in dad, that they had heard the testimony of Stephen, that they had heard about the day of Pentecost and they had received uh, uh, the, the faith once delivered to to the saints and they were genuinely blood bought. They were spirit filled. These young ladies were servants of the most high and they told others about faith in Christ. I tell you, it is so heartening when we had judgment house to see so many dozens of our teenagers, uh, maybe it was a stretch for some of them. Maybe it was uh, uh, coming out of their comfort zone, but to uh, take groups around and testify of, uh, of hope, eternal, uh, the hope of eternal life found only in Christ and to see them uh, share that uh, in the various scenes and all that we were doing in judgment house. These young ladies were modeling what daddy had taught them, namely to be openly and unashamedly uh, committed to Christ. Um, Dad, sir, the most effective apologetic for the gospel. That is the most effective answer for the gospel. I believe in the eyes of your children is your own commitment. 
It's your own commitment. I heard it said, I heard it said 30 years ago, uh, 28 to nine years ago when I was just first saved. I wasn't married, didn't have any kids, but a preacher said then, and I, I, I didn't understand it. I mean, I, I wasn't a parent. I didn't fully uh, uh, appreciate the, um, the reality of it. But he says, sir, if you uh, have hope for your children in this day and age and in this world, uh, growing up to be servants for the Lord, you need to be a soul winner. You need to be one who sacrifices. You need to be one who's on the front line, courageously standing and proclaiming Christ. And why is that? Because to some degree, children reason that if dad has given his life for the cause of Christ. If he's courageous, if he will sacrifice, if he'll uh, have discomfort in his own life, if he'll step out of his comfort zone, then it must be real. There has to be something to that. If daddy is willing to do that, if daddy is willing to lay down his life for the cause of Christ, there's validity there. There's substance there. I can also follow in those footsteps. Courage which is contagious. Philip caught it from others and he was quick to teach it to his family. This point is vividly illustrated. In Philip having Paul stay in his own home, look at verses eight and nine. In verses eight and nine, it says, Paul uh, uh, came into Caesarea and entered into the house of Philip, who was one of the seven and abode with him and apparently uh, stayed with him for at least a while. Remember now, Paul at that time was Saul of Tarsus. He was the chief cheerleader as Philip's dear friend, Stephen, his deacon brother was being stoned to death as boulders were being crushed and thrown upon Stephen. And, and, and the rest of them were heckling and, and, um, and uh, blaspheming and, and uh, filled with uh, hatred and anger. Philip was right there watching it, knowing that that man later to become the apostle Paul was the chief cheerleader. He was the one possibly who could have redirected the whole thing. He could have shut it all down, but he was saying, yes, let's get him. Let's get him. Let's throw another stone on. Let's crush him a little more. And yet Philip said, yes, come into my home. Come into my home with my four precious daughters. I want them to be around you. What courage, what a heart to trust in the Lord. You see, 20 years later, not only was Philip not consumed with bitterness, he was rejoicing in the ministry God had given Paul. Now, here's, here's the answer to that. How can enemies become allies? How can enemies, those who are polarized, become allies and fast friends? How is that possible? By loving and hating the same thing. That's how enemies become allies, by loving and hating the same thing. You see, Philip hated the evil work of Satan and he loved the gracious work of God. And so did Paul. They hated the same things and they loved the same things. It's been said, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. You see, the enemy of Philip was the evil work of Satan. Well, that was the same enemy as Paul had. The enemy of my enemy becomes my friend. And that's what happened. That's how Philip viewed it. There wasn't any room for bitter unforgiveness. Wasn't any room for jealousy in the work of Christ and how that must be true in marriages or they're going to divide and they're going to fall or in parenting or with brothers and sisters or in the church. We must model what it means to courageously stand for Christ 
and that other, so that others would be taught that same principle. Courage, which is contagious. That's how you know if you are really making a stand. Is it affecting others for the cause of Christ? Secondly, in verses 10 through 16, courage, which is consistent. Courage, which is consistent. That is, it's not wavering. It's not up and down. Paul was not going to be dissuaded from the mission God had given him, even though some of them were in verse 12. So they heard these things. It says both we and they of that place besought him. Don't go to Jerusalem. Paul, don't do it. What are you thinking? And Paul is saying in his heart, I'm not going to be dissuaded. The courage that I have that that God has uh, 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 instilled in my heart. I'm not going to blow it by listening to these others. Agabus even. We first saw Agabus in chapter 11 and verse 28. And Agabus was a prophet. And he says there's going to be a famine that's going to come upon the land. And he uh, was so used of God to help the believers prepare for that famine and weather that particular natural disaster. And so he was believable. And he illustrated this by taking Paul's belt and binding himself and says, Paul, If you're not going to listen to what we're saying, let me give you a a picture here. Let me give you an illustration of what's going to happen to you when you go to Jerusalem. They are going to bind you. They're going to take you away. Who knows what ultimately they're going to do with you. It seemed like every day Paul was being exhorted to steer away from Jerusalem. His friends at Tyre said that. Um, These folks here are saying that. But Paul... said, in essence, my courage is not going to waver. It's not going to vacillate. It's not going to be up and down. I'm going to fulfill my calling in going to Jerusalem. See, the Spirit of God had already told Paul that trouble awaits him in every city, it says. The Spirit said, when you get to Jerusalem, the Spirit of God moved upon the hearts of others. When you get to Jerusalem, you're in for it. You are really going to run up against a brick wall. Just know that. And say, he said, I'm going anyway. The courage was consistent. He stayed the course. Some might wonder about God's care. Some might wince at knowing that God allows the faithful to suffer as if we're disposable. Folks, let me let you in on something. This life is disposable. If you understand it in the sense of we're to be used up, burned up, swallowed up, lifted up, poured out as an offering unto the king. And so in a very real sense, suffering is not just a part of the lives of believers. We have a calling to suffer. It says in 1 Peter 2 verses 19 and 21 that as he suffered, we are to follow in his steps. You've been called to suffer. Paul knew that. And so this didn't come as news to him. This wasn't a surprise. This didn't take him off guard when he said, I'm going, I'm going on to Jerusalem. What do you do when there is a a difference of trying to discern the will of God? Think about this situation that happened here a year and a half ago, roughly. Redbridge was planning our first huge youth mission trip. You remember we were going to Haiti and there was a lot of uh, plans going on. This was in early 2004 and we were trying to discern who's going to go and who the leaders are going to be and, and how many are going to go and all that. What was the big obstacle that was thrown in our path? You all remember there was what going on in, in Haiti? 
Yeah, a coup. That's right. A government takeover right in the middle of us trying to plan to do this. The country just absolutely goes crazy. It's being torn apart at the seams. And it was on the news uh, uh, all the time. And, and, and our Haiti, our, uh, and our orphanage, our very own people, the Campbells are right there. And in fact, um, as I recall, uh, Jennifer came back for a little while um, during that time, not knowing which way to play. And we were, we were planning this and we, we were struggling with what to do. And there was much discussion about the wisdom of going to Haiti uh, to serve in our orphanage. My very own daughter was going. I was uh, very much in the midst of that planning and uh, having a, a pastoral care, a parental care about this issue and what to do. How do you know when... God seemingly is presenting a ministry opportunity for you and there's disagreement about the wisdom of it. That's what happened here. Uh, God had clearly placed upon the heart of the Apostle Paul, go to Jerusalem. He's taken this offering. I mean, he's got money, uh, money bags. He's got saddlebags filled with currency to take to the hurting brothers and sisters in the mother church in Jerusalem. Everybody else is saying, hold it, don't go. What are we to do? In these types of situations, how can we come to a consistent, courageous and proper decision in these kinds of situations? I look at the other uh, Blanchards heading to Russia tomorrow. Larry, is that right? Flying out tomorrow to Russia um, into a, a, a new brand new area. How do you make these decisions and not cave in to cowardice? But not be presumptuous either. Let me give you four points. These are important. Parents especially take note of these. First of all, you need to check your heart to avoid fear. I, gotta, I need to know. Why am I having uh, a caution here? Uh, what is going on in my soul that would make me to wonder whether or not I ought to do this? The number one ministry stopping element, I would presume, in the lives of 21st century Americans has to be fear. It's not going to work. I'm going to get hurt. There's going to be a problem. Um, there's difficulties. There's problems on the horizon on that. Uh, it seems like many believers are afflicted with the paralysis of analysis. I can't do anything because I'm not seeing everything perfectly clear down the road. Therefore, I can't do anything and are gripped by that. And it's a straitjacket and it's bound folks up. And so I say to you, check your heart. To make sure that you are walking by faith and not by sight. That you make sure that you understand 2 Timothy 1.7. God has not given you the spirit of fear. So if you have that, recognize that is not the will of God for you. Are you fearful? Folks, when it comes to missions or any aspect of our Christian lives, anticipated difficulty, anticipated difficulty is not necessarily a signal to direct you away from that ministry. Not at all. It wasn't even anticipated in the heart of the Apostle Paul. He knew he was running into trouble and everyone else knew it too. It was certainly anticipated with Martin Luther. He probably had pretty much resigned himself. He's going to a fiery stake. Anticipated difficulty does not necessarily mean that you ought to shy away from it. As a matter of fact, it might drive you toward it. Think about Jesus. He was driven to the cross. He was compelled to the cross. There was a lot of difficulty there. He knew what, what was uh, before him. Yet he continued down that path till he reached his God-ordained destination. Now, folks, I'm not saying 
that I'm looking to be a martyr, that I prefer to be a martyr. No, I am not saying that. But I am saying I want to remain in his will. And so if being willing to risk for him is part of that, so be it. That's just part of the calling. Think about it this way. Are you able in your wisdom to make 100% of the money God has entrusted to you go further than God can make 90%? Did you, did you follow that? 100% of the money with you and you alone, this is how far you can make it go. 90% or whatever's left with God on board, which could go further? Which could be better utilized? Think about this. Are you safer in Kansas, Missouri, Kansas or Missouri, in the middle of this God-blessed land and being out of his will, or are you physically safer anywhere else in the world at any time when you're in his will? You all following the argument? It's pragmatic, but I think it's got some theological uh, substance to it. Where are you better off? Where ought I to be? And so fear must not drive us. Do you refrain from witnessing, from giving, from going? Because somehow you've got it all wrapped up in your, 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 the straitjacket. It's strangling you. Because fear is, what the, is the motivating thrust. Check your heart to avoid fear. Secondly, complete your homework to avoid foolishness. You see, you need to plan properly. And that's not contradictory to the above point. This point is not a contradiction of the above point. Yes, I'm to act not at all in fear, but in courage, but I'm not to do so foolishly. Think about this. There probably are some who are fearful of going to Haiti uh, to serve in our orphanage, just by way of example, because of the fear of malaria. Is there malaria there? Absolutely. Do people get it? No question about it. Might you get it? Yes, you might. And so therefore you are driven by that fear of contracting malaria. I'm not one of those. And that's not being braggadocious. I'm just not, I'm, I'm not that. But I don't mix faith with foolishness. Therefore, as a practical illustration, when Betsy and I went down to Haiti a couple of months ago, we loaded up on anti-malarial medicine before we left, during the time, and then after the trip. And so foolishness isn't the will of God any more than fear is the will of God. You all hearing me say amen. You don't walk in foolishness any more than you're to walk in fear. Think about Daniel. Daniel was fearless, but he didn't volunteer to go into the lion's den. Oh, I know, king. I'm going to do what, I, what God wants me to do. And why don't you put me in the lion's den? No, no. He wasn't presumptuous and foolish in his fear, uh, fearlessness before man, he used wisdom. And so don't succumb to fear, nor opt for rash, presumptuous foolishness. The best advice is don't be rash. Make sure you have an understanding of what you're launching out into. And Jesus taught on that subject relative to salvation. He said, now, before you come to faith, before you really embrace me, you need to count the cost. You need to make sure what you're getting in for. You need to really have an understanding that it is dying to self. It is taking up your cross and following me. He said, count the cost. And so there's wisdom for us as we walk courageously 
that we come to an understanding of what it is that we're committing to do. Thirdly, consult your head. That is your authority. Always, always and forever do that. Who is over you in the Lord? Who has God placed over you? My kids said, told me when, um, when uh, they, they were younger and they were less experienced and, uh, and didn't know that they didn't know anything. Oh, no, that's still the case. But anyway. <clears throat> um, they said, Dad, you don't have to obey anyone. You're the husband. You're the father. You're the pastor. You're, you're sovereign. You're autonomous. And of course, we know, I certainly know, that is not the case. I can't just go off acting recklessly or, or act recklessly and, in fact, get away with it. And so, who your head is, consult that one. What does your authority say about the situation? A home or a church divided over a ministry direction doesn't have God's blessing on it. And for those parents who had a check in their spirit, And they didn't want their young people to go on the mission trip. That was the will of God for your family. I mean, I can say it was absolutely the will of God for your family as much as I felt like it was the will of God for our family. And in fact, our teenager going because the head was consulted and a decision was made. I tell you, it's it's difficult times. Leadership can be lonely when one person is making that final decision. But there needs to be that in the decision making. Then fourthly, consider your household. That is, how is this going to affect others? Not just your own family household, but the house of God, the household of faith. That is, the people of God. What might be the will of God for me at a particular time might not be the will of God for you at that very same time. Time. And no one should lord that over you or put you in a box that's outside of the will of God for you. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, this is what God wants me to do. And notice in the end of verse 14, notice in the end of verse 14, uh, and they, they, they ceased trying to dissuade him. And they said, the will of the Lord be done. Now, that phrase was not a fatalistic resolution. It was a realistic um, it wasn't a fatalistic um, uh, resignation. That is, I just, okay, I, I resign it then. We're just going to all die. It wasn't that. It, uh, it was a realistic resolution. Okay, here we go. This must be the will of God. We've talked through it. We've, come, we've consulted uh, one another. We've, uh, uh, who's the authority and who, uh, who is involved here? Here we go. We are committing to this. And so there needs to be a consideration. Even though I'm the head of my home, I still need to be considerate of the feelings of Pam and my kids. And, um, and it doesn't mean that, that I cave into pressure one way or the other, but it certainly doesn't mean that I stubbornly ignore the counsel of others. Well, Paul's friends pleaded with him. The deacon and his daughters pleaded with him. But he knew what the will of God was for him. Why did Paul have such courageous conviction regarding the will of God even when he knew his own welfare was at stake. How could David have the courage to face face Goliath? What motivated Esther to stand before the king, even though she wasn't summoned? 
How could Daniel go into that lion den? How could Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go into the fiery furnace? How were they able to do that? Well, Hebrews 11 says one word. What is it? It is faith. Faith is what it is. And how is faith generated? Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. In other words, Martin Luther and all of those courageous saints throughout the ages simply trusted in what God has said in his word, that he'll not leave us, he'll not forsake us, that is there anything too hard for the Lord and you're more than conquerors because I love you and, and, and I'm in you and the love of God is shed abroad in your heart and you have my wisdom and you can do all things through Christ who strengthen you. The word of God is what instills faith, the capacity to believe and then move out and follow him. <clears throat> what engages or triggers that faith? What is it that actually gets it moving? I would suggest that by viewing the cause as bigger than the concern, that is the ignition point. Viewing the cause as bigger than the concern is, big, is, the, is the ignition point. I told this story one time and I'm done. I was four years old maybe. Five, and we were over right underneath uh, uh, the Red Bridge on Red Bridge Road by Minor Park 45 years ago or so, 40 some years ago. My mom and my two sisters and myself. And we were very little. As a matter of fact, we had on one of those little, I had on one of those little um, Donald Duck things that went around because we were, we, were, we were waiting out there in the uh, little Blue River. Children, don't try this at home. <laughs> Don't do this any longer. It's not a good idea to swim in a little blue. But back in those days, you know, we did. And, uh, and we're there, and I got one of those little floaty devices on. I couldn't anymore swim. I don't even know if I'd ever been in water other than a bathtub up to that point. And I'm floating around a little bit, and all of a sudden, there's a drop-off point. Of course, nobody sees it. This is a river. You can't see it there. And I'm out in deep water, way over my head, deep water. And I've got this little floaty thing on. I'm kicking my feet for all I'm worth, thinking one plus one equals. In other words, I know my situation that I'm in right now. And so I'm screaming, I'm panicking, I'm hollering uh, for my mom. Well, my mom can't swim at all. Zero. Maybe she could puppy paddle now. I don't even know. But back in that day, could not swim any at all. And yet she came out there, launched out into the deep. Now, for her, it was, it was, it was chin, chin deep with, a, with a, a current going through. Why was she able to do that? Because she saw the cause as bigger than the concern and said, I'm going for this cause because I'm the one, only one who can. Whatever the will of God is for you, be courageous in the classroom, in the neighborhood, in the workplace, because the cause, the glory of God, the salvation of souls is bigger than any concern that might be offered in your heart. Lord, I'm thankful for your word. What a huge.